I want to start this morning by uh, confessing something to you, if I can. Can I be honest with you this morning? We're in church, right? I better be. Well, here it is. I, I want to confess to you that I get easily sidetracked. I do. Anybody else like this? It's a huge struggle. Huge struggle for me. I will start with my mindset to do that certain something and something else will come along. Normally it's not as important as what I'm doing and it will set me in a completely different direction. This is a problem for me. I've been known to, to be sidetracked for 15 to 20 minutes or an hour or longer. And Leslie knows this about me and so do my girls. At night when I'm at home and in charge of putting the girls down, Leslie will at times remind me of my tendencies. She'll say something like, don't let them get you off track, stay the course, get them in bed, say their prayers, you know, y'all say the prayers and, and turn the lights off and leave. And when I go back, it seems like the girls have already been scheming on how they can get me sucked in to a conversation so that I'll stay back in their room longer and they can stay up later. They will start with, Dad, look at what I learned today. Dad, Dad, look at this. Look at what happened. At, listen to what happened at church. Listen to what, what Joy did today. Dad, 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 you know. And I'll, of course, get sucked in. And Leslie will then come back and, and get me out of the jam by saying, Go to bed, girls. And then I'll get settled in the living room and then I'll hear another voice from another room from Joy's room. Dad, come here, you know, never fails. Never fails. It it happens uh, most nights when I'm when I'm putting them to bed. I'm easily sidetracked. And and many of us are this way, right? And this is especially true in our spiritual lives. We get sidetracked very easily in our spiritual lives. At times, it's idols in our life that become more important to us than, than God and, and more important to us than time spent with Him. Other times, it's trials that come that keep our focus off of who God is and what He's done for us and who He's called for us to be in Jesus and what He has called for us to do as His disciples. It's easy for us as Christians to be misdirected and to lose sight of where we are headed. It's easy for us to be sidetracked and sidelined in ministry. Maybe that's where you are this morning. If so, it's good you're here today because today we're going to look at the example of the Apostle Paul once again. We're going to look to him as our example of how to stay the course for Christ. Paul did this, didn't he? He experienced a lot of ups and downs in his, in his life and in ministry, but he remained faithful to the calling that Christ had placed on his life. It didn't matter if he was where he wanted to be or not, whether he was free or in chains, whether he had a solid group of Christians with him or whether he was alone Paul remained faithful. He remained on the hard but right way. He continued on through the highs and the lows, through the easy times and the trials. Paul remained faithful. He continued the work of ministry wherever 
his circumstances led him. Wherever Paul ended up, that is where his ministry continued. We've seen this over and over again through this study. We're definitely going to see that this morning. For the past few weeks, we've been talking about Paul's time in Caesarea. He's been in this city for some time now, for over two years. And some of you are probably thinking it feels like two years that we've been with Paul in Caesarea, right? We've been with Paul for the past several weeks in this same place. And many of y'all are ready for us to to move on. I promise you we're going to be moving on after next week. Paul will be on the way to Rome. But in our text for today and next week, he's still in Caesarea. He has appealed to Caesar, and Festus, the governor of Judea, has agreed that that's where Paul needs to go. He needs to go to Rome. But we learned last week that Festus has a problem. Though the Jews have accused Paul of being an enemy of the Jews and an enemy of Rome, there have been no accusations made against Paul that is stuck. Paul is innocent, and he is being kept by this leader over Judea solely as a favor to the Jews. So Festus has a problem on his hands, doesn't he? He has a prisoner who is a Roman citizen who has appealed to Caesar who is innocent. It will not look good if Festus sends an innocent Roman citizen as a prisoner to Rome, but it will also not go well for Festus if he lets Paul go. He'll then have a huge problem with the Jews in Jerusalem who hated Paul and wanted him dead. Well, we learned last week that it seems as if Festus catches a bit of a break at the end of Acts 25. We looked at this text last week. Festus is visited by King Agrippa II and Bernice, who was his sister and also his lover. Agrippa was not a great guy, but he was the Jewish king at the time. And he was just doing what was customary by going to visit Festus, who was the the new ruler over Judea. And while Agrippa is with Festus, Festus tells Agrippa about Paul and wants Agrippa, King Agrippa, to hear from Paul about what Paul is being charged with by the Jews. And he's doing this in hopes that King Agrippa, being king of the Jews, will find something from a Jewish perspective that will carry some weight that Festus can include in the report to send with Paul to Rome. After talking with Festus, Agrippa agrees to to hear from Paul. He says in Acts chapter 25 verse 22, I would like to hear from the man myself. Tomorrow, said Festus, you will hear him. So today we are going to look at Paul before Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and many others in Acts chapter 26. And this chapter breaks up nicely into three parts. You have the permission granted to speak, the message proclaimed by the accused, and the response of those present, which we'll look at next week. So let's look at this trial here. First notice the permission granted to speak. Look at Acts chapter 26 verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And we find that Paul is ready. Luke tells us, then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I like it here that Paul speaks with his hands. At least I have something in common with him, right? 
Maybe it's more spiritual to use your hands. I'll think in that way, all right? Because Paul does it, right? But he's ready to go, isn't he? He's ready to go. Agrippa wanted to hear from Paul, and Paul had a sermon to preach. Paul never misses a beat, does he? We're told in the scriptures that, that we as believers are to be ready to give an account for the hope that we as believers have in Jesus whenever the opportunity presents itself. Festus and Agrippa provided an opportunity and Paul jumped at the opportunity. Do you? Do you? When the opportunity presents itself, boy, I missed an opportunity this week, just being honest. I had another one that I... That I did not miss out on another opportunity, but I missed one. I was not ready, and I didn't respond the way in which I, I should. And we, we, we do that at times, right? You're going to deal with this in your study guide this week. We're going to talk about how to ready ourselves to give an account whenever the opportunity presents itself. Paul took advantage of most opportunities given to him. Now, think about this. Paul was told by Christ back in Jerusalem that he was going to be his witness in Rome, but two years has passed, and Paul is still in Caesarea. He has been questioned by the Roman government and tried by the Jews a number of times. He has escaped death from them a number of times, and he finally says, enough is enough, I appeal to Caesar, and even after that, he's not yet on his way to Rome, but remains in Caesarea. And in this passage, Paul is standing before yet another Jewish leader, a king of the Jews, Agrippa, and before Festus, the Roman governor, once again, of Judea, defending himself once again. Now, i got to be honest with you. If I was Paul, I would be frustrated. I would stick to what I said to Festus to begin with. I would say, listen, I told you, I've been tried on these charges. I appeal to Caesar. Send me to Rome. But Paul doesn't do that. He sees this as another great opportunity to minister. Now, I want you to hear this, and I want you to be sure and write this down. Listen to this. This is your main point in your study guide this week. In the trials of his life, Paul saw ministry opportunities. In the trials of his life, Paul saw ministry opportunities. He did not let trials and difficulty get him off track spiritually. He was faithful, and wherever that faithfulness landed him, that's where he remained faithful. And he took advantage of every opportunity that was presented to him. Again, believers, is this true of you? Boy, there is great application to be made here by us, isn't there? Listen, believers, in the trials of your life, there are great opportunities to minister. God is at work in the midst of the mess of our lives. He is with us in the storms of this life, and he wants to use you, get this, at your most vulnerable moments to minister. I've seen it happen over and over again. I've seen it happen with folks in this room and folks in the second service. Don't believe he works in this way? Just look at the cross. The crucifixion, though the most heinous and unjust act ever done, is the place where God provides rescue for us. 
at the cross. God places our sin on Jesus so that we might receive Christ's righteousness by faith alone in the person and work of Christ alone so that we can be saved by God, from God, for God, through Jesus. Through the most vulnerable moments of Jesus' life, Jesus stayed the course. And what did he do? He accomplished our salvation. We often miss out on these moments because the enemy tempts us to turn inward and away from the needs of others and the opportunities we have to be used by God for his purposes and for his glory. We learn from Paul here that in the trials of life there are great ministry opportunities and Paul took advantage. Notice Paul responds with a great message. He's given the permission to speak and boy does he ever speak. Let's look at it. Notice the message of the accused. In this message, Paul shares the gospel once again. The way he does it is by sharing his testimony, appealing to his experiences, and by appealing to the scriptures as well, which we should do. We we should do both. So let's look at it. There are four parts of Paul's message here. We're only going to look at uh, two and a half today, okay? And next week we'll look at at the rest. First, notice that Paul tells of his Jewish past. We have uh, looked at this a few other times, but let's look at it again. Look at verse 2. Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me Patiently. Now, Paul is beginning by being very, very courteous here to Agrippa, but he is not using flattery. I think Paul really is happy that he is standing before Agrippa because Agrippa was a much more partial Jewish leader than the religious leaders that that Paul faced in Jerusalem. You see, because Agrippa was a king from a long line of kings over the Jewish people, because he interacted with the Jewish people quite a bit, he was familiar with the Jewish customs and controversies. So he's good for that reason. But Agrippa also had ties and was loyal to Rome. So he would probably, from Paul's perspective, he was probably thinking he's going to judge me much more objectively. So having ties to the Jewish people meant he would understand Paul's arguments, which he's going to make from from his Jewish background. And having ties to Rome meant he would be much more objective when when evaluating Paul's position. So Paul's happy about this. Look at verse 4. Paul begins with his testimony by saying, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So notice that Paul is once again trying to establish common ground with his Jewish accusers to show them that he was once where they were except more zealous. He says, from my earliest years of life, I was educated in Jerusalem. And notice he appeals to the Jews in Jerusalem to confirm this. He says, this is known by all the Jews. 
They have known this about me for some time. And if you press them on it, and if they were willing to testify, they would tell you that I lived as a Pharisee. The Pharisees at this time were one of the most strict, conservative groups of, of, of Jewish people in this day. So he says, from early on, I was schooled in Orthodox Judaism in the center of it all in Jerusalem. And all the Jews know this. Look at verses 6 through 8. 6 and 7 first. Look at this. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. So he says, though I was once a zealous Pharisee, now I stand here on trial because of the hope that I have in the promise that God made to our Jewish fathers. He says, I'm on trial because of the hope that I have in this fulfillment that God promised, that he promised to Abraham and repeated to Isaac and Jacob and others the promise of a future blessing. Remember that promise? Genesis 12. A future blessing that will be experienced in a future resurrection. You see, the, the hope that most Jews had at this time was that the promises that God had made to their fathers of this future blessing would be one day experienced by the Jewish people. They believed a Messiah was going to come and was going to deliver Israel and that they were going to take part in that future blessing. The Jews had a rough history up to this point. I mean, think about it. They spent a great many years in captivity. Though they knew a few years of success and prosperity, they mostly knew nothing more than war and slavery and death. And though the Jews were not enslaved by Rome in Paul's day, they might as well have been. They were treated terribly by the Romans, so much so that later on there was a Jewish revolt because of how they were treated. So there was this hope of this future day when this Messiah would come. And they thought at this time the Messiah was going to come and he was going to set up shop. He was going to establish a physical, earthly, powerful, and impressive kingdom right here and now, in the here and now, in their day. And this future hope, get this, it had ties to a resurrection. Think about it. What good is a promise made to Abraham if he's not going to get to enjoy that promise in the future? You ever thought about that? The Jews in the Old Testament, they shared this hope that there was going to be this future existence with God where they would enjoy the fulfillments of these promises, of this blessing made possible by this Messiah. That's why the Orthodox Pharisees believed in a resurrection. They believed in some sort of future existence after death with God forever. The reason they believed this is because their Jewish fathers believed this and taught this. And Paul says, this is my hope. This is my hope. The hope of the Jewish people. The hope of all 12 tribes. Now notice here, this is just a side note. This is extra. Paul refers to all 12 tribes here. 
He says in verse 7 that the hope he has in this promise is what all our 12 tribes hope to attain. There's a false view floating around today that says that only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin remained in Paul's day. But we see here there were remnants of all of these tribes, which is why Paul says what he does in verse 7. That's just extra. So he basically says here, I'm being condemned for believing what the Jews believe. That's what Paul's saying. I am suffering abuse and I'm being condemned by the Jews because I have the hope of the Jews. This messianic hope. That's why he asked the question he does in verse 8. Look at it. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now remember, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection, but they were in a group of their own. They were, they were the liberal Jews of the day, but many of the Jews did believe in a resurrection. So when Paul asked this question, they would have had to have answered it in this way. We do not think it's unbelievable that God raises the dead. We just don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was the one who was raised. That's how conservative Jews in this day would have answered that question. And Paul knows that, which is why he says what he does next. Look at verse 9. Paul's going to make the point that God raised Christ and that Christ is the Messiah by appealing once again to his experience in the past. He says, verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He's making the point here that he didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah either. He's making the point here there was a time that he did not believe in Jesus' resurrection, so much so that he opposed any and every everything associated with Christ and done in his name. Look at verse 10. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in, in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul says, I was so opposed to this teaching that Jesus is the Christ and that he had been raised that I not only locked up saints in prison, but when they were put to death, I, I cast my vote against them. I chased them all over everywhere. I persecuted them to foreign cities. I tortured them and made them blaspheme. And by the way, I love how Paul, when telling of his past, admits his guilt in the present. I love that. Notice he says, I locked up saints. He calls them saints. He certainly wouldn't have called them saints back then. And he says, I forced them to blaspheme. It's not blasphemy if Jesus is not God, right? But Paul had been changed, which this is a great principle for us when we're sharing our faith, though it's important that we share our past and, and the way in which God has saved us. It's very, very important that we highlight the fact that we are sinners set against God. And those we're sharing with, we need to call them out of that life. We need to call them to forsake that same sin and turn their life up and over to Jesus. And that's what Paul's 
getting at here. Look at the second part of Paul's passage. He's about to show them how wrong he was. In the first part, he shows them that he was once like most of them. He was holding on to the hope of a future Messiah to come and possess this hope of the resurrection. He just did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah and the one who had been raised. But oh, how wrong he was. Look at verse 12. Notice he appeals once again to the fact that he has seen the risen Christ. That's point number two. Paul testifies about the risen Christ. Look at verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. Now let's stop there for just a minute. Such an amazing story, so amazing that Luke mentions it more than a few times in the book of Acts, right? So let's focus on it again. Remember, Paul is sharing with King Agrippa and others how he came to the realization that Jesus is God's promised Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of all that was promised in the Old Testament by God to their Jewish fathers. He shares with them on the way to Damascus to persecute more Christians under the authority and the commission of the chief priest. He says, at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Now, I've never been in this part of the world, but I heard a pastor explain it. He was with a group, and they were on the same road going to Damascus at midday, and he said, I tell you, the sun was blinding. It was so bright. So picture that. Paul says, as blinding as that sun is, I saw a light shining brighter than that sun. No wonder he was blinded. And he said, verse 14, when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now the word goad here is in reference to an ox goad. It's talking about an ox goad here. An ox goad was a large stick with a sharp point at one end. And in this day, when a young ox was being trained to pull a single plow, I had to read about this because I've never done this, all right? They would often kick and resist. And when they would do that, this farmer would get that goad and it would poke and prod that ox. And after a while, if that ox wasn't a dumb ox, it would stop kicking. Notice... Jesus refers to Paul's opposition against him and against his people as kicking against the goads. We get the sense here that while Paul is persecuting the church, he's having a miserable time. Every time, think about it, every time he would try and stomp out the fire of this revival that was breaking out, he would just spread the embers further and further. The further he chased God's people, the further they were spreading, the further they would spread, the further God's gospel would advance. Isn't that awesome? And finally, on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to Saul and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're not going to win, Saul. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Boy, we got a lot of folks kicking against the goads today, don't we? Boy, and they're in a miserable way. You ever notice that? Every time somebody brings up Christianity, it looks like they, somebody set their cat on fire. That's all I could think of. 
That's the kind of look they get on their face. They wish Christianity would go away. They, they do their best to push against it. They try to discredit it, but they can't. God's gospel continues to be defended. God's gospel continues to be shared. More people continue to respond to it. His message continues to go forward. His kingdom continues to advance. And these people just continue in misery. Maybe I'm describing you this morning or someone you know. Listen, Christ's statement is for you here. It's hard to kick against the goads. You know why? Because God is the one who is driving history his way to his own ends through his son and get this, through his church. Through his church. Folks, if you stand in opposition to Christ and his gospel and his church, you will lose. If the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, you're not going to prevail against the church. Very, very important that we remember that. Many of the Jews, they learned this the hard way. Paul finally learned his lesson on the road to Damascus, and here he is pleading with those in his audience to understand as well. Well, look at what happens next. Here's the main point Paul's trying to make here. Look at verse 15. Paul said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Paul shows Agrippa and the others in the crowd that Jesus is the Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the hope of heaven. He is the one who came to fulfill all that God promised to their fathers. He's alive. He's risen. He's Lord of heaven and earth. Well, Paul's not finished. After appealing to his Jewish past, in testifying to the risen Christ, he shares once again about his heavenly calling. Look at it. Look at verse 16. Jesus is still speaking here. Paul is telling what Jesus said to him, and look at what he says, verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. So, so notice here, Paul says the risen Lord did more than just appear to me. He made me his apostle. The word translated sending in verse 17 is the Greek word apostello, which come, which where we get our word what? Apostle, right? Yeah. So Jesus says, Paul, get up, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you my servant, my witness, my apostle. And, and notice also here that Jesus says, I am delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now that sounds a bit unique, doesn't it? Until you really get a grasp on the calling that is placed upon the life of every Christian. Believers, we have been called out of this world. We have been set apart by God through the person and work of Jesus Christ to go back into the world and minister. That's what Jesus is saying to Paul here. He's saying Paul, I have delivered you from the world, from your people, and from the Gentiles. I have called you out of the world only to send you back into the world to be my witness to the world. Look at verse 18. This is great. 
to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What a wonderful calling. We've been called to do that as well, believers. This is what Paul was called to do. This is what you and I are called to do. We have been saved by God. We have been plucked out of this world to be sent back into the world, to be witnesses for Christ to the world. We are to be going out into the world and sharing God's gospel to the world from His Word in the power of His Holy Spirit so that people's eyes may be opened to the truth. Jesus opened Paul's eyes and now he was going to use Paul to open other eyes to this truth so that they would turn from darkness and turn toward the light of the world, the Lord Jesus. Jesus tells Paul, you're going to go out and proclaim this message so that people will hear it and turn away from the power of Satan and turn to God through faith in me. You're to share this message so that people may hear it and may receive forgiveness of sins and may receive a place with the rest of God's children who are being sanctified, who are growing in godliness as a result of their faith in Jesus Maybe you're here this morning and you have not yet responded to this message. You're not trusting in God's Son, Jesus, alone for your salvation. It's good that you're here this morning. There's no better time to make that decision than right now. Scripture is clear. We've all turned away from the God who made us and created us to live in relationship with him. But scripture is also clear that God demonstrated his great love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Though we deserve God's judgment because we have set ourselves against God as his enemies, God has provided a way for us to be made right with him again by sending his son to live for us and die for us and be raised for us so that we through faith alone in Christ alone could be forgiven of sin and declared not guilty and ushered in to God's kingdom and brought into his family as sons and daughters through Jesus. So if you're here this morning, you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, I invite you, I urge you to do so today. Let's pray.